Welcome back to Nonstop Politics. I'm your host, Darshal Azalea. Today, we've got to talk about the absolutely maddening events of the last week in American politics. Coming up, Nancy Pelosi rips President Trump's State of the Union speech literally right behind his back after what was a very, very divisive address. Plus, I'll talk about President Trump's acquittal in the impeachment trial on both articles of impeachment. Only one Republican senator voted to convict the president. I'll tell you who that was and why they voted that way a little bit later on in the episode. But first, absolute chaos ensued on caucus night. Monday, of course, was the very first contest of the 2020 US presidential race in the Democratic primary. The Republican Party also had a caucus. Donald Trump won 97% of the vote, so that's all good. But on the Democrat side, it was absolute chaos that unfolded. To say it was drama was probably the understatement of the year. So a question is, how did it all go wrong? Well, as per usual, Democratic caucus goers headed to one of over 1,600 precincts in in the state of Iowa. And... They heard speeches from the candidates' uh, surrogates and representatives. And once that was done, all of the caucus goers broke off into groups, standing by the candidate of their choice, and a headcount was taken. Then there was a realignment so that candidates who didn't receive 15% of the votes would have the opportunity to get the support of other caucus goers to bring them to their corner. That vote tally was taken, and whoever came out on top would have won that caucus and then you'd have all the state delegate equivalents counted up which is the way that they measure who will win the most number of delegates and that would determine who would win the Iowa caucuses as a whole. However, the crux of the problem here lies with an app that the precinct captains were meant to use in order to report results back to the Iowa Democratic Party and according to the Iowa Democratic Party a coding issue in the app meant that this failed to work and somehow it wasn't tested beforehand, and even hours before the caucus was meant to happen, there were complaints that there were issues with this app. And so what captains had to do instead was call a hotline, but the problem with that was it was getting clogged up because there were so many people trying to get through to report their results back. I mean, there was even an issue where on CNN, there was a precinct captain on the phone to Wolf Blitzer, and he got so distracted with his telephone call that once he actually did get end up getting through, he didn't end the interview with Wolf Blitzer, he didn't get on the phone straight away, and in the end, that call call centre worker in uh, Iowa actually hung up. So after two hours of being on hold, the guy, the precinct precinct captain, ended up being cut off, which is just extraordinary, and just sums up the absolute abysmalness of the night that took place. It was just honestly absolutely crazy. And so... All of this meant that as the evening went on, zero results whatsoever were being reported. Um, No rejections were made on the night. In fact, we still do not have an official winner at this point. And it really, really goes to show how dysfunctional and disorganised this whole process is. My plan this week was to come back with an episode on Tuesday morning, the day after the results, tell you who the winner is, break down what had happened. But I woke up on Tuesday morning at about 5am picked up my phone and I was like why is it empty the lock screen was literally empty nothing was on there and then I had to open Twitter and it turns out the Iowa caucuses really were a mess a lot of people were saying beforehand because the rule changes in the Iowa caucus that it was going to be a mess but I never ever even contemplated that this is as bad 
as it was going to get. So by the end of the night, the candidates had given speeches. They took advantage of the vacuum in the media. Amy Klobuchar went first. Biden then followed. Buttigieg then claimed he was victorious. Maybe a bit prematurely, but actually now, in terms of where we are, it does look like he's going to end up winning the most number of delegates. Bernie Sanders looks like he's going to get the popular vote, but more on that in a second. So the next day, on Tuesday, the chair of the Iowa Democratic Party, Troy Price, released 62% of the results. Buttigieg took an early lead with 27% of the state delegate equivalents. That's essentially the metric that's used to work out how many delegates each candidate will get. And with Buttigieg, what's interesting is that his share of the vote is quite evenly spread across the state. So he was able to win rural areas, urban areas, with older voters, younger voters. And he was really, really polling quite highly, especially in the areas where there's more delegates up for grabs, whereas someone like a Bernie Sanders, who was on 25% in second place, he did really, really well in college areas, college-educated areas, but struggled in others. And so that's why, even though he looks like he's going to win the popular vote, in terms of delegate count, he may fall just behind Buttigieg on that front. Warren came in third with 18%. When the results of 62% of precincts were counted, Biden languishing in fourth. Not a good look for him at all, especially when you look at his campaign being around electability. That was on Tuesday. As of yesterday, Friday the 7th of February, the Associated Press and American News Networks are still yet to declare a winner of the Iowa caucuses because of some inaccuracies and errors in the reporting of some of the results. But this is the count with 100% of precincts reporting. We have Mayor Buttigieg on 26.2%. Bernie Sanders just a whisker behind him on 26.1%. So literally one-tenth of 1% difference between the top two candidates in terms of delegate count. Warren is at 18, Biden's at 15.8, Klobuchar on 12.3. And with this tight result, the chair of the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, Tom Perez, has called for a mandatory recount or called a recanvassing of the results to try and see if he can resolve this tie between Bernie and Buttigieg. Now, the delegate count as it stands, if these results are to be taken as final, is as follows. Buttigieg will win 13 delegates, Bernie Sanders will win 12 delegates, Warren will be on 8 Biden on six and Klobuchar on one. Remember, 41 delegates are up for grabs in the state of Iowa. All other candidates will be left empty-handed. And so I guess the question that you're asking me now is, Dash, why does Iowa matter so much? You know, a candidate needs 1,909 delegates to be the nominee. There's only 41 up for grabs in Iowa. It's tiny. Why does Iowa matter so much? Well, the answer comes down to one word, really. Momentum. Look, as I've said in the podcast before, candidates who do really well in these early voting states are going to have more momentum. More momentum means more money. More money means more ability to campaign and have TV ads on in the states on Super Tuesday, especially with California and Texas, two of the biggest states, very, very delegate rich. It's absolutely crucial to be shown that you can be winning now. And then when you get into Super Tuesday, when more delegates are going to be up for grabs, you're then going to be able to take advantage in states like that. You know, a strong finish in Iowa can really propel your campaign heading into New Hampshire. And already we're seeing, despite the fact that 
he didn't have his big moment on Monday night. Pete Buttigieg is already skyrocketing in the polls in New Hampshire. So the New York Times is reporting that New Hampshire is looking like an increasingly two-horse race between Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg. You've got Sanders on 24%, Buttigieg on 20 Biden on 17 Warren on 13 in the Monmouth poll. In the Boston Globe and Suffolk poll, Buttigieg has seen his support double in the last week. But, uh, the Suffolk University poll is has been taken, I believe, every day this week. And over the week, his support has doubled, which is very, very significant and does show that Iowa has been able to give him some momentum heading into New Hampshire. Uh, I would caution, though, that even though Iowa and New Hampshire are very important states, they are 90% white population. So you're not getting a very, very broad representation of the Democratic Party as a whole. And this is where I think Buttigieg's weakness is going to come in, especially with black voters. You look at someone like Biden, who is polling at around 40% with African-American in South Carolina, you're going to see Biden really, really make a resurgence there. The other thing I'd say is for Warren, this is not good news, this poll, because New Hampshire is the neighbouring state to Massachusetts. Uh, Vermont is also a neighbouring state of New Hampshire as well. And if Elizabeth Warren can't beat Bernie Sanders in New Hampshire, then where else is she going to be able to have a chance to beat him? Uh, This is really, really, I think, a very, very important moment for her campaign. If she can't beat him in their home turf where else is there going to be a chance to do so? So it's important that she pulls out a really good performance here and gives her the chance to be able to move forward effectively. You know, as I said before, Biden still has a shot in South Carolina here. There's been a bit of an unfair media narrative, especially in the United States, basically trying to say that New Hampshire is Joe Biden's last chance and if he doesn't show what he's made of now, he's going to crumble, he must do well in New Hampshire... Otherwise, black voters are going to stop supporting him. And I just think this is a lot of nonsense, personally. I'm of the opinion that the media is trying to write Joe Biden's obituary super early and super prematurely. Look, the polls are saying that, yes, his lead overall in South Carolina may have declined. But remember, the black vote is 60% of the electorate in South Carolina. 60%. And Biden is leading, I think, in somewhere around 40% with black voters. So it is pretty much certain he's going to win the South Carolina primary and it is very important that the views of black voters are respected because this narrative about Buttigieg rising and it being a two-horse race between Buttigieg and Sanders it's a narrative but it's not representative of the country as a whole it doesn't take into account a diverse opinion we haven't even had the Nevada caucuses yet which are going to come in a couple of weeks time so we have to really take that into context it's not like the Republican primary where you can say right Iowa voters want Ted Cruz, New Hampshire voters want Donald Trump, it's going to be a two-horse race, we can take it as gospel. It's not like that in the Democratic Party, it's much more diverse, and so I would caution you to think carefully when you hear pundits say that New Hampshire is Biden's last chance, because South Carolina is yet to come, and that is where I think Buttigieg's campaign will have the brakes hit hard, because he's not going to be able to perform well in diverse areas. His support with black voters is pretty much zero. There are many reasons for that, but I would be careful in believing this narrative that Biden is down and out if he doesn't do well in New Hampshire, because you have to take into account the rest of the country as well. But of course, with everything in politics, we just have to wait and see how things pan out. 
The New Hampshire primary is on Tuesday. We'll get the results in, hopefully, on the Wednesday morning. Hopefully, I'll be able to make a podcast on time and on schedule. Um, But the big takeaway here with the Iowa caucuses is that we may have just had the last Iowa caucus. Prior to the debacle of Monday, there were already big concerns with the process and big concerns with the amount of importance that comes with Iowa hosting the first contest. The Iowa caucuses are never going to be the same, pretty much, after this. You know, already brewing concerns about representation, the process itself, how difficult it is, and this debacle has served yet another blow to the caucuses' first in the nation status, and it's possible that this could be the very last Iowa caucus that we ever see. But we'll see how that one pans out. Well, whilst all of that continued to unfold in Iowa, Tuesday night saw President Trump's third State of the Union address. And without question, (laughs) this was one of the most contentious nights, one of the most contentious State of the Unions ever. I mean, from the get-go, you could feel the chill that was the product of the frostiness between Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi and President Trump. You could just feel it. It was ice cold, chilly, frosty, absolutely crazy. She extended her hand for a handshake when the president was giving herself and the vice president a copy of his speeches. He declined. No no, uh, no handshake for you, Nancy. And then instead of the usual introduction by the House Speaker saying, I have the high privilege and distinct honour of presenting you the President of the United States, she simply went for members of Congress, the President of the United States. Bit of shade thrown there, you know, with especially with the whole impeachment thing going on, which, by the way, Trump steered clear of completely. He steered completely clear of impeachment. He waited till the next day to give his victory lap on that. But one of the more uh, controversial moments of the night was right in the middle of the ceremony, where President Trump presented conservative radio host Rush Limbaugh with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Now, Rush Limbaugh, conservative commentator, very, very popular on the right. He's been in this business for 30 years. Earlier this week, he was diagnosed with advanced lung cancer. And obviously, it's a very, very sad diagnosis for him. But the president decided that this would be the perfect chance to award him the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Literally, in the gallery, he was stood up, the first lady was next to him, and it was actually the first lady that presented him with the award. Now, he's been criticised by some on the left for being a very controversial and divisive figure. He is not seen as the unifying figure that the Presidential Medal of Freedom is normally awarded to. But by far the most dramatic event of the night was right at the very end. Trump concludes his speech, round of applause, standing ovation, from the Republican side, and Pelosi stood right behind the president, literally takes his speech and rips it up behind his back. Rips it up. Just casually at the end. F this speech. When she was quizzed about it afterwards, it's hilarious. She actually said it was the courteous thing to do given the alternatives. I mean, what on earth could she have done? to that speech other than rip it up. It just goes to show you how angry Democrats are about this president. And that really is a representation of the anger and the fury that's been manifesting over the last three years. Pelosi did say that hopefully this won't have to happen again because she is expecting a different president 
for the 2021 State of the Union address. We'll see if that pans out in November. And it does to prove also just how much of a boss she is, really. She's a boss. I mean, remember the sideways clap from last year? Mm-hmm. I remember, remember that. Now we have her ripping the paper. She really is meme material. And I'm not sure if it's intentional or if it's something that she's crafting to try and take on Donald Trump. I don't think Nancy Pelosi needs memes to take on the president. She's more than hat capable of taking him on herself, if we see, as we've seen in the past. But this is just another example of how it is that Nancy Pelosi can really throw the president off guard and capture the media narrative in the process too. And now that brings us to the biggest surprise of the week, the news that nobody could have foresworn whatsoever. President was found not guilty on both articles of impeachment. Oh, it's a miracle. I could never, ever have predicted that, said no one ever. So the vote in the Senate was 52 to 48 that found him not guilty on Article 1, abuse of power, and 53, 47, again, not guilty on obstruction of Congress, Article 2. Now, you'll notice the first vote being 52 votes not guilty rather than 53, which is the number of Republican senators. And that's because there was only one Republican that voted to convict President Trump on that charge, and that was Utah Senator and 2012 Republican nominee Mitt Romney. Now, to be honest, it was no surprise to me that he voted in that way. I know a lot of commentators were saying that they thought it was more likely that Democrats would flip. People like Doug Jones of Alabama, who's quite vulnerable in November, he's up for re-election. They thought people like him would switch. But I always knew Mitt Romney was going to vote to convict, not least because of his Mormon faith. He is an absolute devout religious person. And he even said in his speech on the Senate floor that my promise to God to imply impartial justice required that I put personal feelings and biases aside. Were I to ignore the evidence that had been presented and disregard what I believe my oath and constitution demands of me for the sake of a partisan end, it would, I fear, expose my character to the histories, to history's rebuke and the censure of my own conscience. So, unlike most of his colleagues, Romney did what was morally right and what was constitutionally right. He didn't put his partisan political agenda on the table, even though he's not up for re-election until 2024 and Utah is conservative, deeply conservative, but not exactly Trump country. Utah is not the place where you're going to have a lot of Trump fans, a lot of Trump yard signs. That's not the place for that at all. So Romney is in a unique position. He didn't really, you know, have any trouble um, making that decision. He, there's going to be blowback from the mainstream Republican Party. Donald Trump Jr. said some nonsense about kicking him out of the Republican Party. I mean, I, don't, I wonder what Mitch McConnell will have to say about that. I don't think he'll be agreeing with that at all. Um, and the funny thing about this is that Mitt Romney's quotes about his faith leading him to take a moral stance here, most TV pundits say that that's exactly the same thing as what other Republican senators are saying. They're disgusted by his behaviour, they're disgusted by his morals and attitude, but they've got no choice but to back him. I mean, look at people like Lindsey Graham, right? from South Carolina. He's up for re-election this year. Look at how much he has lurched to the right. Remember the days when he and John McCain were best buddies, you know, talking about law and order and the rule of law and the constitution. Lindsey Graham used to be, you know, a fighter for all that stuff. Now he's, you know, doing the president's bidding because he's vulnerable in South Carolina. He's up for re-election. He's got quite a few primary challenges and he has to toe the line. And so that's why you're seeing someone like him, you know, he's absolutely petrified of the president. And so, he put politics before his morals and what was right. 
Mitt Romney did the opposite. And you're getting a lot of respect for Mitt Romney. You may disagree with him politically, but he put the Constitution first and he looked at the evidence and found that Trump, in his view, was in fact guilty of abuse of power. And that's why he voted that way. And what's interesting is that this has now made Trump not only the first president to face a bipartisan vote against him, but we're in uncharted territory here because Trump has been acquitted on both articles of impeachment in an election year. So the dynamic that this is going to have now going forward is going to be very interesting to watch because Trump is already um, on a victory lap. He has called out the dirty cops, the liars and the leakers. Two of the key witnesses in the uh, impeachment process, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, Ukrainian expert, and Gordon Sondland, who's the ambassador to the European Union, both of them have been fired from their roles in the last 24 hours in the wake of his acquittal. And you're seeing this, you know, revenge streak against uh, the president's enemies ongoing already, something that Mitt Romney's having to face, and now these folks are having to face it too. And so how this plays out this year is going to be quite something, but it's not a very good look overall for the Democratic Party when they're having all of their chaos. Trump is now able to stand above it and say, I've been acquitted, I am the best person to run the country. How on earth can we trust the Democrats to run healthcare when they can't even run a simple caucus? And so this just all elevates Trump uh, at the end of this week as he is able to now say he's been acquitted and is now able to get on with his re-election campaign. Definitely something to watch out for over the next few months. Well, folks, that was certainly a jam-packed show today. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at nonstoppolitics, and you can listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. But until next time, I'm Dash Leslie, this has been Nonstop Politics, and I will see you next time. Bye-bye.